0: Good morning. morning. Oh, my. Hello. I don't always like to hear me the first time. Twice is a bit excessive. (laughs) All right. Well, good morning and welcome Uh, again. Glad you're here today. My name is Mike Lilly. I'm one of the pastoral candidates here at King of Grace, Uh, and it is just a pleasure to be able to stand before you today, a pleasure to worship with you, and a pleasure to bring God's Word to you. I am grateful for that opportunity, and as I have mentioned many times in the past, it is a humbling experience to, to be able to bring God's Word before people in, in either teaching or preaching, uh, because the first person who gets dealt with any time you preach is the person bringing the Word. And that's a true statement, and it's no less today in the passage we'll cover um, than it is, has been any other time I've preached, maybe more so today. Um, we're supposed to have slides. I don't know that we're going to have them. Uh, but, oh, there they go. So, we'll be, pre- we'll be talking today about uh, what you would refer to as the passage of the prodigal son. I think we could... And, and those those little namers that you get off in your Bible that kind of tell you the descriptions of it, those are actually added in quite a bit later. And, and I actually, if I was going to do it, I think I would have named it the two lost sons. Because really, it's about two lost sons, not just one. So... Um, I think today, and I hope today, that you'll see um, that it is about two lost sons, but more importantly, it's about an outrageously gracious, merciful father who loves his two sons and goes over and beyond to show grace and mercy to them. Let's um, start by reading our passage today. Uh, Then I'm going to pray, and we'll get started. Now, the passage we're going to read today is out of Luke 15. We're going to read verses um, 1 and 2, and then we're going to drop down and read 11 through 32. Okay, and I'll explain afterwards why we're taking that big leap. Uh, If you're familiar with the book of Luke, it's one of the four gospels. It was not Luke was not one of the disciples of Christ. Uh, he came a little bit later. He followed with Paul. He went with Paul on his missionary journeys. Um, and he writes his, his Gospels, his Gospel, and the book of Acts. So, just to kind of give you a, a sense of who Luke was. Luke was a doctor, and he was um, one who liked facts, as you can well imagine. So, there's a lot of facts that are packed into the way Luke writes. Um, so, let's uh, now read our passage. Luke 15, starting with verses 1 and 2. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now dropping down to verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who had sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one. to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field. And he came and drew near to the house. And he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked, what, was the, what these things meant? And he said to him, your brother... Has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this, your son came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, uh, for this passage. Thank you for these words. Lord God, thank you for this parable. Lord, it is a parable where each one of us can find themselves. Lord, I pray today as we bring forth this word, as we speak it, Lord, as as it comes forth, that you would proclaim it with power. Your word is a power unto salvation. Lord, would you use it today to save many souls? Would you use it today to convict and bring us into right relationship? Lord, show us where we are among the characters presented today. Father, thank you for this word. And bless it. In Jesus' name, amen. So my earliest recollections of my father are probably, as best I can remember, um, sitting on his lap. I grew up in Maryland. And sitting on his lap... um, outside under a carport, listening to a baseball game in a thunderstorm. That's like the first memory I have. It was an Orioles game, back in the days when Brooks Robinson was playing. Yes, I am that old. (laughs) It is true. Brooks Robinson, Pal, these were the guys, you know, that were the, the guys on the team back then, back before Reggie Jackson came on. Have I dated myself enough now? Half of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Yep, that's right. So, that's probably my earliest memory. And um, it was a safe place. It was a place of of love. Um, And it was a place of warmth. I don't have a lot of those memories with my dad. In fact, I could probably, in my younger years, count them on or three fingers. Um, and I don't say it was his fault, I don't say it was my. I, I don't know, that was just a, a relationship that was always a little tedious. My dad was older when I was born, didn't have a lot of time, didn't have a lot of patience, was on a lot of different meds for heart things, and so his temper would be all over the map. You never knew who was going to walk in the door. Um, so it was a rough kind of experience with me. By the time I was in my 20s, I had a great relationship with my dad. Um, It changed a lot after I came back out of the first Gulf War. You know, there's a level of respect of of combat veterans that kind of goes together, and and that, you know, was important for him. Uh, And we got along well after that. And about probably five years after, five years before my dad died in 96, he became a believer. So I'm really stoked because me and my dad get to, to spend eternity together. That's good news. I'm stoked. So, um, But all of us have memories or don't have memories of fathers. See, this is a difficult story in a lot of ways. Now, if you talk to Enza, she's got great memories of her dad. I mean, just story after cool story after fun story of her dad. Absolutely loved him. He was a great guy. And from... As long as she can remember till the day he died, she has fantastic stories. But I know not all of you fit into that category. Some of you don't remember your father. Some of you maybe have never met him for various reasons. Some people had abusive fathers. I mean, like my stories would give you nothing. They would be chump change next to the things your dad did. So, when you talk about a loving father, um, it can be difficult for people to understand what that means. And I think we sometimes approach our understanding of God by our understanding of our own earthly father. And it's hard to trust a father that wasn't there, it's hard to trust a father that was abusive if that's how you understand Him to be. It's tough. But this story gives us insight into a different kind of Father. This is Jesus' Heavenly Father that He's giving us insight into. And so as we approach this story today, you know, we can find ourselves easily in the position of that younger son, in fact, many who are, who are newer believers, that's exactly where they find themselves. And, and when you listen to this story get preached a lot, that's what you hear, prodigal son. And then you hear something about the father, and then nothing about the older brother. Because the older brother is an uncomfortable story. We as Americans love a happy ending. We like things all wrapped up, neat, tidy little packages. And they didn't get this in this story. There's no neat, tidy ending to the story of the older brother. So we're going to explain a little bit of why that is today. We're going to go through all three of these characters. And in it, listen and find yourself and where you are. And then we'll talk about how to respond. So, without further ado. In our story... The first thing we read was about the audience. Chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. So in that, who, who was this parable being addressed to? Well, first off, it was being addressed to tax collectors and sinners. That's who was there when Jesus is talking. Now, it says that the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. When you get that kind of language in the, in the gospel, in the New Testament, you know, you're looking at verses like James 4.8 or, um, or maybe um, a verse out of Peter and where they're talking about, oh, these people are drawing near to him. God draws near to them. They draw near to God. It's, it's usually a salvation sort of terminology. You know, that people's hearts are open to what God is saying. They're drawing near to him. And when they seek him, he'll be found, right? So what we get is these pictures of tax collectors and sinners who are drawing near to him. Now, a tax collector, a sinner. Let's put this in a little context. Who was a tax collector and what did it mean to be a sinner? Well, if you were in that category of people, you were basically one who had rejected the Jewish culture. You had said, yeah, I got it. We have this religion. We have this faith, and I don't want any part of it. And in this case, because of the way Judaism was, you were not only rejecting a religion, you were rejecting who you were as a person. Because they were inseparable in a sense. You were rejecting family. You were rejecting upbringing. You were rejecting all that defined who you and your people were. That's what it meant to be listed among the sinners. And the tax collectors, even worse. Because now you were not only that person who was probably among the sinners, but you were working for the Romans you were working for the occupying force and if you were a normal tax collector you were skimming off the top and the only way to do that cuz the romans were going to get what was required for them was for you to steal so you were charging, you know, if taylor owed 5 dollars i was charging him 8 pocketing 3 and giving 5 to the romans And that's how I was getting rich. That's how I was making my money as a tax collector. So people hated tax collectors. I mean, absolutely hated tax collectors. But they were protected by the Romans. So, in the opening of this story, you have these tax collectors and sinners who are drawing near to Jesus. They're hearing his message. It's changing their lives. It's changing the way they think. Then you have the other person in the story, the Pharisees and the scribes. And the Pharisees and the scribes, it says, what were they doing? They were grumbling. Now you might find yourself in their position and go, well, maybe they had a right to grumble. They were the guys who were holding everything together. And in a sense, that's very true. We kind of look down on them really quick. But, but they were. They were holding things together. They really were what was keeping Jewish culture alive and from being completely overrun by Roman culture. And it was their great desire to see the Messiah come. When you read the, uh, the literature of the 200 years before Christ is coming, it's the Pharisees that are saying we have to live right. We have to to live right before God. We've got to follow God's laws. We're waiting for the Messiah, and that's going to bring the Messiah when we're finally a people who are for God and living for Him. It wasn't that they didn't want the Messiah to come. But as we've heard many times, they were expecting a Messiah like King David, a king a warrior, someone who would break through and overthrow the Romans. Not the Messiah they got. And so this man comes and he is bringing in all those who were the the opposite, the complete opposite, the antithesis of who they were and what they believed. These were the people who were sinners. They weren't following after God at all. And yet these were the ones who were coming to Jesus in droves. The thousands that were following Him, that's who they were. And the, and, and the Pharisees and scribes are like, no, no, that isn't right. We're the ones who have been righteous in following after God. Who is this guy to be talking and eating with sinners? And to eat with sinners, so to eat with someone in Middle Eastern culture is a very intimate thing. To bring someone into your home is an intimate thing. You're inviting them. You're giving them almost like family status, family protection. Codes of loyalty are invoked. All sorts of things like that. You don't bring... It's not like our culture where, you know, I don't have a clue who you are, so I'm going to invite you to lunch and we're going to have lunch together so I get to know you. No, 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 no. no. That's not how that works. We don't eat together until there's some real relationship that's been built And so, here, the Pharisees are saying, what are you doing? You're eating with sinners and tax collectors. For the Pharisee, that would have absolutely defiled them. They would have had to have gone through all these different ceremonial cleansings afterwards. You don't deal with sinners. You don't touch them. You don't talk to them. You keep a good space away from them. You just don't do that. And so they were grumbling. I want you to know God's people have a long history of grumbling. A long history. It starts in Exodus 15 where they grumbled about not having something to eat. It goes all the way up into Numbers. In Numbers 21 where they're not just grumbling against Moses, but they're grumbling against God. And remember, He brings up the serpents. That's where you get the bronze serpent from. God's people grumbled against His prophets when they brought the truth to them. And Jesus will even say, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who killed the prophets. You who stoned those who would bring the message to you. And He said that just a a short chapter before. God's people had grumbled for a long time. And so, Jesus tells a parable. Now, these parables, these sets of parables, these three parables, aren't really to the tax collectors and sinners. They're there. But that's not who this is directed to. This story, these sets of parables, are directed towards the Pharisees. So, when you get, we've skipped over a couple of them, but I'll briefly tell you what they are. So, we have the parable of the lost sheep, and then the parable of the lost coin. And then we get to the parable that we'll cover today. And in that parable of the lost sheep, the man has a sheep that's gone astray. He leaves the 99 sheep that he's responsible for and goes to find the one. He finds the one, he brings it back, and he says, there was much re- there was rejoicing he invites his neighbors in and they all rejoice together because that which was lost has been found In the next story same kind of thing a coin is lost by a woman she sweeps out her whole house and when she finds the coin she calls all her friends together and says rejoice with me because that which was lost has been found And that which is lost and has found, is brought in, it is a cause for rejoicing. And in both of those, there's a sense, there's a a word, there's a, a passage that's given that runs along the lines of, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And in the other one, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, let me ask you, who is that? It doesn't say the angels have the joy so much. It says there is joy before the angels. Where are the angels faced in heaven? Towards the throne. Where is the joy? It's with the Father, it's with God. It's with the Father because one sinner came home. One sinner was brought in. And there was great rejoicing on the throne of heaven. The Father rejoices. So our characters are, are in a sense, who this story is going to. The audience for the parable we're about now to really focus on are the tax collectors the sinners. And in reality, the real strong focus is towards the Pharisees. In our parable, starting in verse 11, we're given three groups of people in there. The younger brother, the father, and the older brother. So let's take a look now at this younger brother. The younger brother, in verse 11, it says... And there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. This is what you can think of in this story as the rift. This opens up a huge chasm. Why? Well, let's take a, th- let's take a look at what has just been said by this young man. Father, I want my inheritance. Now, culturally, when do you get inheritance? It's not much different today. When do you get inheritance? After they've died, right? Well, this is the equivalent culturally of saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Because if you were dead, I could have this now. And so I'm going to treat you like you're dead and you treat me like the son who's going to get the inheritance. So I want my third. Now, why a third? Well, because the older brother, by law, would get two-thirds, and the younger would get one-third. Okay? It's that double portion that goes to the oldest. So I want my third of your wealth. Now, that may sound simple enough in our times to be able to do, but how was wealth measured at the time? Herds, animals, and property, right? So this is saying, Father, get rid of all your property. All this stuff that your name is tied to, all this land that... that, Really, our whole tribe, our whole clan, our whole family has been tied to for generations, thousands of years. I want you to sell all that and give it to me so I can go and do what I want. It's an incredible insult. And by all rights, the father had every right at that point to disown his son. Absolutely. But what does he say? Let's look at verse 13. Not many days later, I'm sorry, um, and it says in that the, he divided, this is the end of 12, and he divided his property between them. The father's response was one of grace. It was one of humility. This story is absolutely outrageous. The fact that the father would do and meet the request of this son and sell the property, sell the hurts, and give to him his third, it is outrageous. This man is now ridiculed. I guarantee, socially, he looks like a fool. This father looks like a fool. Everyone in town would have been making fun of him, would have been pointing fingers at him. He was a failure. This father was a failure. One, because he raised a son like this. Two, because he actually gave his son these things. Then it says in verse 13, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. And he was... So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. But no one gave him anything. What happened? Reality set in. So in this story, this young man goes, takes all the wealth that he has, and now spends it frivolously, recklessly, foolishly on things that had nothing of value in the end. And he's left with nothing in a foreign country. And he hires himself out. He basically indentures himself. Now if you're familiar with Jewish law and, the, and the, the Mosaic law, that's a bad thing to start with. The fact that he went there to start with was a bad choice. The fact that he gave himself to prostitutes, women of a foreign country, women who serve foreign gods, bad choice. The guy has not made a good choice in this whole story. And what does he do with all of it? He drags his family name through all of it. That's the reality of also what's going on here. It gets so bad that he hires himself out as an indentured servant and he's doing what? Feeding pigs. He's working among unclean people, among unclean animals, giving them waste products. I mean, there's, he has defiled himself about as far as you can go. Culturally, he is filth. And I don't mean he's just dirty. I mean he is filth. He would not be welcome in any Jewish community at this point. And that's the reality of it. But this reality is what he needed. Because reality leads him to realization. Realization. And that realization picks up in verse 17 where he says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish in hunger. The reality is, or the the realization is that he's able to remember back and saying, you know what? I've done some pretty dumb things. But I know my father's a just man. Maybe I could at least work for him and at least be able to maybe pay back some of his debt. That's kind of what's going on in that. Because if he worked for his father, he wouldn't get really a whole lot of anything other than fed because he's indebted now to him in a sense. Um... And he says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Repentance. He knows what he's done. And he knows the spot it's gotten him into. And his heart now turns back to home. And he longs for it. He longs to be part of a family again. He longs to be part of a community again. And he doesn't know how to get there. He can't be part of a family again. He's broken too many. He's burned too many bridges. There's too great a chasm that's been opened up by his actions. It's impossible. But he says, maybe I can at least go back and apologize and at least work for him. And so he returns. It says in verse 20, he arose and came to his father. So repentance leads to action. And he makes the initial steps to come to the Father. But he hasn't gotten too far in this whole journey before the Father sees him. And the Father does the unthinkable, the outrageous, the unbelievable. This man who has been laughed at by the town, this man who has been humiliated by this son, what does he do? He runs to him. He sees him from a long way off and he runs to him. He runs to him. Let me explain what that means to you. He, that means he takes a whole bunch of his servants, because his servants are going to see him all of a sudden pick up, hike up his his gown thing that he's wearing there, his shits running and go go, boom. He's gonna take off. And they're gonna like, whoa, and they're gonna go chasing after him now. And he's going to be seeing him from a long way out there. He's way down the road. And so he's running through town. And these people are like, what is this guy doing? You know, I mean, they're just laughing at him all over again. Again, he's made a fool of. Just, it's outrageous. But he runs to his son. He runs to his son and hugs him. It's absolutely outrageous. And what does the son say? What is the son's response to this so far? He says, Father, I have sinned against you. The father has just lavished him. With an embrace, with kisses on his face, and said, "You, my long-lost son, I love you." And he brings him in. I don't care that you've humiliated me; that you've made a fool of me. You are my son, and I love you. I love you. And so the young man says, "I've sinned against you, and I no longer am worthy to be called your son." But the father stops, and he gets no farther. He gets not another word out of his story because outrageous mercy and grace are given to him. The Father says to his servants, go, get the best robe, get my signet ring, get shoes for his feet. Do you understand what he's just done? The best robe, that's the father's robe. At the time, he's only gonna have two or three of these things. He's wearing one. He's got another one. And he's got one more, and it's for parties and celebrations. And he takes it out, and he says, Put it on my son! Because he's mine. Put on him my signet ring! Do you realize what that does? That gives him full power and authority in the home. It gives him the right to speak for his father, to deal with his property, to deal with everything he owns because when he's got the signet ring and he puts it down like that, that marker says, this is my family's name behind it. This is as good as my father has said it. That's outrageous. This is the same young man who wasted a third of everything they owned. He has not shown Himself in any way to be responsible. He is a fool. And His Father is as much a fool for giving Him the same opportunity again. That's what anyone looking would say. But this Father says, I love You. And You are fully Mine. And I bring You in. Everything that is Mine is Yours. I love You. I don't care what you've done. You are My Son. That which was lost is found. That which was dead is alive. And then He tells His servants, go, let's celebrate. Get the fat calf. Let's have a party. Let's celebrate. You didn't do that. People just... Meat is a rare thing at the time. So to have that to have a celebration, to have a party, to have that meant you were having all the community in. When you killed the fattened calf, the whole community came. It was a huge deal. So into all this stuff, all these people that have ridiculed him and mocked him and made fun of him for the way he's been treated by his son, and now the way he's been dealing with his son are now invited to a big party to celebrate his homecoming. It's outrageous. It's outrageous. It's outrageous that he would want to celebrate. It's outrageous mercy and grace extended to this young man who in no way deserved it. Every bit of this story so far is outrageous. Then we read about the older brother. So the older brother now in verse 25 comes in and it says Now his older brother was in the field and as he came, he drew near to the house and they heard the music and the dancing and he called to one of the servants and asked them what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, I have never disobeyed your command, and yet you never gave me a goat, a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours was has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. The older brother, the older son, is enraged by this. He is indignant. And any one of you can understand why he would be indignant. You've done all the right things. You've done all the right work. You've followed the rules. You've been on the the property day in, day out, doing all the right things. But what's in your heart? And that's what he's poking at here. And that's what we see come out. This older brother's response is just that it's met. He meets the father's humility and the father's grace with indignation, with anger. And to that, and in response to that, the father comes out and entreats him come, come, my son. Come in and join the celebration. Come in and rejoin. Rejoice with us. Rejoice with us. That which is lost has been found. That which was dead is alive. Rejoice with us. But how does he respond to his father? Look. Oh my. That's a huge insult. So this young man, or this older brother, who has done everything right per se and followed the rules, now addresses his father with about as big an insult in a conversation between a father and a son as you could have. Look, you, you. That's how you treat servants. He's treating his father like a servant here. And now the father has every right to look at him and disown him for his actions. And the way he's treating him, because by not coming in, he's saying to the father, "I don't agree with you. I think you are wrong. I will not be part of this foolishness. I am separating myself from this family." That's what the older brother is now saying. "I refuse to be a part of this." This older brother, think about what's going on for just a second here. He's got some good reasons. The father just brought this bum of a brother back in. And now guess what? Remember that third of the property that he took away originally? He's just fully reinstated him into the family. Now what the older brother had, his two-thirds, just got lessened by one-third because he brought him back into the family. For the older brother, he just lost a third of everything he owned because that will now be given to the younger brother. That inheritance, that was his, that he worked for, that he's done so right to manage and maintain. He's angry and he's frustrated. Now we'd like to find that at the end of this story, everyone comes and is happy and mended and that the family is back together but it doesn't give us that, does it? How does this story end? This last verse says, the father responds to his son. He says in verse 31, Son, you were always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This part of the story is very unsettling because there is no happy ending to it. The older brother is left and we're left with the older brother standing outside. See, Jesus, Jesus was addressing the Pharisees here. He was saying, these sinners and tax collectors that you should be rejoicing over because they've come back. Instead of entering into celebration with your Father, you are rejecting the work of your Father. You're rejecting the decision of your Father. And you're standing out here in judgment of your Father. And in judgment of the younger brother. And that's where Jesus was. And that's who He was talking to. He was talking to the Pharisees. If the band could come up. It's not an easy part of the story. And the question really in some sense for us, and every church in America and every church in the world is if you're not seeing new believers, is it because we've filled too many seats with elder brothers? That's a tough question. That's a harsh question. But it's one we need to think about. How do we respond as the church to the younger brother? I want to give you some some things today though very quickly to say let's respond. If you find yourself in that position of the younger brother where you've done a lot of dumb things where life has not gone the way you expected and you're here today you have the opportunity to do just like the younger brother did. You can turn, you can realize where you are and life did not go like I had hoped. And you can turn today And you can decide, Father, forgive me. God's Word is very clear. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You can turn today and find Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you can enter into the celebration of the Father. Because that's what's going on. Just like it talked about that in heaven, There's celebration when that sinner comes. What was lost is found. You can enter into that today. If you have questions about that, feel free after the service to come up and ask me about it. I will be happy to talk you and walk you through that. It's very simple. You realize who you are. You ask God to forgive you. You basically say, Lord, I've screwed this up. Please forgive me. Take me in. Make me your son. It's as simple as that. And you can do that today. And if you do, I'd love to hear from you. Come out. I'll pray with you. I want to get you started on the right path. Maybe you find yourself in the position of the older brother. You know, it's not too late to realize where you are there also. And it's the same process at that point. Repent. Turn from it. Turn back to God. Let His grace and mercy fill you, wash over you. Let His outrageous grace and mercy fill you and overflow you. And then run. Run to the celebration. Run to that celebration. You have the opportunity to to be reconciled both to God and to other believers or, or other people in the church. You have the opportunity to be in a restored relationship. Don't waste it. If God's been speaking to your heart today, do it today. If you've been in judgment of somebody, a family member, or a brother or a sister at the church, today, seek forgiveness. Be reconciled. Be restored. And enjoy today the outrageous mercy and grace of your Father in Heaven. And today, if you're a father, here's your opportunity to show outrageous grace and mercy to your children. Run to them. Run to them again and again and again. And just show outrageous mercy and grace. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness, your mercy, your kindness to us, your outrageous, outrageous mercy and grace. Thank you. Amen.